Welcome to episode 283 of Stageworthy. I'm your host, Phil Rickaby. Stageworthy is a podcast about people in Canadian theatre featuring conversations with actors, directors, playwrights, and more. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed listening to Stageworthy and you listen on Apple Podcasts, please consider rating the podcast with five stars. And if you're so inclined, you can also leave a review. Your ratings and reviews help new people to find the show. And if you know someone that you think will like Stageworthy, tell them about it. Some of my favorite podcasts became my favorites because someone I knew told me about them. And remember, you can find and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere you get podcasts. You can find Stageworthy on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at StageworthyPod, and you can find the website with the archive of all 283 episodes at StageworthyPodcast.com. And if you want to drop me a line, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at PhilRickaby, and my website is PhilRickaby.com. My guest this week is Jenna Rogers. Jenna is a director and dramaturg and is the founding artistic director of Chromatic Theatre. So I found a, uh, a, a bio for you that describes you as a dramaturg and director mm-hmm. um, and artistic director of chromatic theater. Now, is that how you generally would like to describe yourself or do you have other things like when you describe your artistic practice to other people, how do you describe it? Yeah, those are probably among the highlights. I think a lot of the time when I describe my artistic practice, I hone in on the element of it that uh, is relevant to the person I'm talking to. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you know, if I'm talking to playwrights, then I will talk a little, maybe a little bit more about dramaturgy. If I'm talking to actors, um, maybe a little bit more about directing, but I think that they, they work well as, as hybrids and, and mm-hmm. an artistic director is a, is a, you know, temporary title in this world. I think that that's sometimes what you are and sometimes what you're not. <laughs> what can you uh, tell me a little bit about chromatic theater? Yeah, Chromatic Theatre uh, is an indie theatre company in uh, Mokinsis, or Treaty 7 territory, dedicated to uh, work by and for artists of colour, um, was was like sort of the phrase that it started under. Um, but now we are sort of expanded and we are trying to be really, really conscientious of IBPOC people or Indigenous Black and people of colour. Um, as well as uh, as a company, we're doing a lot of work to learn more about um, gender variant communities and how mm. to support uh, those folks. Now, um, as a company that was that was originally uh, uh, dedicated to producing and developing work uh, by artists of color, um, starting to to sort of like expand out from that and to to look at uh, gender divergent or gender uh, uh, other gender identities is that. Is this is this a new new practice? How is this? I mean, there's a lot of talk about gender uh, in the last year or so, so it's it's important that that those that that's addressed. Um, is this a new like is that a new direction for the company or? Yeah, and so to clarify, I guess um, the phrase that I was using at the beginning was like people of color, and now we're really aware that like artists of color are. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really important to highlight specifically indigenous communities and black communities. And that's always been part of our 
work, um, though acknowledging that like I myself uh, identify as Asian and a lot of the coworkers that I have um, are from the Asian diaspora, mm-hmm. though we've engaged lots of indigenous and black artists as well. So part of the conscientious shift from language like people of color towards IBPOC is acknowledging mm-hmm. um, that like indigenous and black need to necessarily come first right now. Um, Mm -hmm. And then the work in the gender variant communities is new work. And I wouldn't say like there are there are companies led by um, queer folks and gender divergent folks Mm -hmm. who are doing Mm -hmm. extraordinary work. And we're not trying to like take up that space Um, so much as like we now have have been working for the last like nine months with someone um, who identifies as non-binary, who's been really Mm -hmm. encouraging us to um, develop our learning and language around that. And since so much of our not so much, but one of our core programs is around statistics. Finding eloquent ways to talk about identity mm. um, is continues to be a central tenet of our work. And so with all the conversation going on around gender right now and sex, um, we have been working as a team to expand mm. our vocabulary on this front and to help advocate, um, you know, for trans community, for gender variant community, for community mm. of sex workers, um, because they're all relevant in the artistic creation of or people who are artistic creators in Mokinsters. Mm-hmm. It, it's interesting the the idea because you mentioned you know you don't want to take away from from companies that are that are that are doing that work. In some ways, um, there's an importance of 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 the visibility, I think, and that that. You know, there are companies that focus on that, but other companies should also be be doing the work and 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 amplifying those voices as well. Um, all of the voice, all of those voices, the the IBPUC, the 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 non-binary trans, all of those those communities. Um, only by by amplifying those voices um, can those communities be more welcome in the theater, which has in the past been. Uh, even though it doesn't know it does it claims to be uh, uh, open has been quite exclusionary yeah for sure and I mean we know that queer folks have existed in theater and performing arts for eons like uh, Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, and have been some of our finest leaders but Mm -hmm. um, in the way uh, as have marginalized folks like racialized folks rather um But like our work with racialized people, I think it starts to become resonant where we need to like make space for a whole multiplicity of voices. And that's the same, like within queerness, we need to make space for a whole multiplicity of voices. And part of like, yeah, making space for it is like learning uh, more about those communities and being able to host Mm -hmm. them. But like, because we are POC led, we may always feel like a more comfortable home for POC artists versus Mm -hmm. like gender variant artists, because we have to acknowledge that like the... Uh, gender diversity on our team is like exists, but isn't sure. isn't hugely hugely varied. So of course, like yeah. some folks might yeah. feel more comfortable in at, at other companies. However, we can be part of, as you say, like the the work to change what the broader theater community can look like and how we can be a supportive, engaging, nurturing um, for a multiplicity of people to be creative successfully. Yeah, I like I like the way that you put you, you mentioned the work because um, it is there there is work involved and we don't know our blind spots until we go looking for them and we accept when people point out our blind spots and to to you know to for for a long time there were um, 
a lot of and and there still are a lot of uh, uh, white led theatrical organizations that consider that when they have a black person in the cast that they are now we're diverse rather than realizing the tokenization that's happening there. Mm-hmm. Um, and until they're willing to listen, which thankfully they're starting to be, um, that blind spot uh, persists until they're, they're willing to, to, to sort of like, until they're made to, to open their eyes and, and actually listen and learn and do the work to, to improve themselves. And that's something that a lot of theater companies have been, have been looking at. Yeah, I think especially during the the sort of pause that COVID has imposed on our industry, um, I think it's a good thing that that companies are looking to find mm-hmm. ways to um, expand their work. I also hope that it is not uh, a phase that it's not because I hear a lot of people being like, "I can't wait till it gets back to normal." Yeah, and like that's... Nor- normal wasn't sustainable. Yeah, well, normal was this like. When we talk about reopening the theaters, are we talking about like just going back to the status quo? Or are we talking about like reopening and and really like paying attention to the things that we've learned this past year? You know, as much as I, I you know, we all want to get back into the theater. I think that this pause has the potential to be really good for us. And to be really good for the theater community as a whole, as we can really start to look at and address a lot of these these issues that the the treadmill of production has given a lot of companies the excuse not to really dig in and do the work because, oh, we're just too busy right now. That Mm -hmm. that doesn't exist as an excuse now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think also the notion that the work is ongoing, like I think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we joke sometimes in our team, like we're like at our chromatic team, we're like, what do, what do they want? Do people want a cookie? You don't get a cookie. <laughs> um, no. Which is like, it's, it's funny, but it's also our, our offhand way of, of, of kind of being like, there's some exceptional stuff that happens. Uh, but sometimes we're like, there, there's a little fear around trying to praise or make an example of someone for positive or negative, because it feels like it sets the standard that the bar is achievable. And the reality is, is that the targets were, are always moving. The population is always changing. What is new and what is relevant is constantly shifting. And so, um, you know, listening and learning as a mm. catchphrase uh, is constant and must be constant. It's not like, well, I'm listening and learning right now and then we'll do something. I'm like, you can't stop listening or learning. Yeah. You can't. Yeah. I mean, the, because you're, you're right, the population, you know, when I look out my window and I see, I see the the population. I see many colors. I see a lot of you know. I I live in a multicultural city, mm-hmm. but when I look at the stages, do I see mostly white people? You know, and that's that's been a long time issue. Mm-hmm. And our populations are shifting, changing all the time. And so, like the stage should always reflect what's on, what's go, what 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 happens in our cities, the people in our cities. It shouldn't always be like old white guys with plays and a bunch of other white people in the show or like the occasional person of color or a black person or, or, or indigenous person. It needs to be more. We need to do, we need to do better. Yeah. And I think, I think change is slow and difficult in, in that Mm. a lot of the time people will program like, I don't know, an extraordinary play like the color purple um, with a, a, you know, all black cast and 
Black-led directing team and a culturally diverse design team. Um, and then they'll do that and people will love it. But the theater will be like, well, Black people still didn't really come to the show. And you're like, well, yeah. maybe Black people haven't felt welcomed at your theater. Well, that's, <laughs> I mean, that's, the, time. Maybe that's you, the thing. <laughs> yeah, there's, yeah. There's so much more to it than just like doing a play. Like, did you reach out? Like, did you reach out to those communities? Did you seek them out? Did you... Did you find out why they haven't been coming? Maybe it's not just because you haven't done the color purple before. Like there's so many reasons and so many barriers that we put in front of people coming to our theaters. Sure. And and I think, you know, there are barriers that that exist in society, which isn't just money. Like I think that's mm. the quick one we go to. But I, I look at like, I don't know, what province are you in, Phil? I'm in Ontario. You're in Ontario. I don't totally know the state of, of all things Ontario, though I did live in Toronto for a number of years. But I can say, like, in Alberta, like, the the education curriculum hasn't been revised in such a long time. And every time it's revised, it's pretty controversial. Mm-hmm. And the arts are just not valued. The arts are looked at in school systems as, as electives, as options, yeah. fine. Um, and for a lot of... Um, a lot of families seen as frivolous and for a lot of families seen as a marker of privilege. Um, so, you know, you can't take piano lessons unless you've got a certain access to money. Mm-hmm. Uh, one, or uh, your parents don't want you to take art class because it conflicts with the chemistry, the advanced chemistry right? Um, class or whatever. And, and so we, you're also in this state that like our society is telling um, newcomers that, art isn't valuable and uh, newcomers who are trying desperately to assimilate mm. are telling their children that art isn't valuable. Yeah. Uh, and then we get into the stream where only a certain echelon of people can are interested in the arts um, yeah. as patrons. And then on the flip side of things, what this like narrative also starts to set up is, is this notion that like um, Art is a, such a specialized skill, you have to be good at it as opposed to something we just do. So people will be like, oh, I can't sing. I, like, I don't mm-hmm, sing. Mm-hmm. I, that's not a thing I do. And I'm like, of course you can sing. Everyone can sing. And yes, some people train and are better at it than others, but we can all participate in singing. We can all participate in dancing. Um, but there's this notion of like, you're either good at it or you're bad at it. And like, mm-hmm. art is only for people who are good at it, uh, which is like a totally false construct. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm, you know, thinking about, about the school system, it is very much the same here. Our, we're always talking about, about STEM as, as, as in education. And, and it's like the arts are missing from that. And that seems to just be every day. There's more and more. Well, like we don't need the arts. We don't need the arts. That started years ago, as far as government was concerned, as far as far as soon as like in Ontario, the, the provincial government took over the education system. Music is sort of like is discounted. The theater is discounted. Arts are like all the arts are just basically things that are not important. And that's that's I think I think that that's happening in many different places. But on the other hand, there is that that it's not a big movement, unfortunately, that's that's talking about how, yes, you can have science, technology and all that stuff. But we also need the arts because without the arts we're missing essential pieces from those from from science technology if you can't think creatively you're not you're not able to do these things as well so it 
it's a bigger picture. And we're sort of like stuck in this whole, how are the arts important? You know, when governments start talking about the elites, as far as the arts go, that paints a narrative that's sort of, that's very similar to what you were talking about. Mm. Yeah. It makes me think a little bit too about, and I, this is like a half formed thought, but about the amalgamation um, politically of arts and culture. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, And we see like, we see cultural festivals like, uh, I don't know, uh, Carrie Fest or Africa Mm -hmm. Day or, you know, um, Lunar New Year or, uh, I don't know, a whole bunch of stuff, I'm sure. (laughs) Um, And we, like, those things are taught in school, culture is taught in school and, like, these celebrations of culture. Um, But so much of the culture that we're trying to consume here is rooted in art like I think of the steel drums, I think mm-hmm. of um, the the lion dance. I think mm-hmm. of um, all I'm thinking of is drumming and dancing right now. I'm like I don't yeah. know the Korean drums or taiko drumming, <laughs> like. But I'm you know there are other there are other aspects. Um, I think about like ballroom um, dance or mm-hmm. the the various forms of like salsa that that these are art forms that have come from other places that here we see as culture. Um, yeah. I, yeah, do you know what I mean? And so I'm I like, do. what is our cultural export? And it has to be more than Robert Lepage and Cirque du Soleil. Yes. Uh, I mean, as far as Canada goes, that's a that's that's that big question, right? Like, what is our culture? What is our cultural export? And we just haven't got there. And I think a lot of that comes from the fact that we don't prioritize it. Hmm. We don't do a lot of thinking about it. And because it's often considered that thing that only rich people do or only people who have certain means can do that. Why would people who, who, you know, who, who work in our grocery stores in our, in our restaurants in our, our, you know, in factories, why would they care about it? So how is that culture? And these is like one of those big questions that, that, you know, at the moment it's, it is Robert, Robert Lepage and it is Cirque du Soleil, but I think it needs to be more. Yeah. And we've also put restrictions on uh, various forms of culture. Like I think about uh, powwow and Sundance and jingle dance and hoop mm, dancing, mm, which were mm. like just forbidden for a hundred mm-hmm. years. Um, so yeah. And now, and now they're like, Oh, we should be proud of these things. And, 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 and it's we're fractured. We're we're schismed because we've spent so much time trying to identify what we're not, and also yeah. so much time clinging to this notion of a cultural mosaic that that somehow we are superior because we are asking people to retain their own elements of culture, um, when so many people are also just so desperate to fit in. But we don't. Yeah. We, don't we don't. We don't have we don't have a clear box to fit into or the clear box that we can fit into. I don't personally like, (laughs) you know, it is, it it is, you know, the, the whole idea of the cultural mosaic is sort of like this, this, it's it's one of those national stories we tell. Mm. Um, Whereas yes, we're a cultural mosaic, but many of our organizations are still predominantly white and we, we have all of these institutional uh, colonial traditions and things that we do that keep uh, uh, people from other cultures from really feeling like they, they can assimilate here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in the process of, of unlearning, like 
if I steer the conversation somewhat back to theater and, and theater institutions, yeah. I'm like, I'm excited about the changes in leadership that have slowly and steadily been happen, happening across the country. Not everywhere, of course, but, but mm-hmm. in some places. And, and, and just because, just because like, I don't know, a person of color or black person or indigenous person takes on a leadership role doesn't mean that it's going to be perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but I, I also want to, how do I say this? We, I think, as artists of color, sometimes feel like there's less room to to fail. Um, and the reality yeah. is, is that we are unlearning colonial structures. We're unlearning institutional structures. And we're often piloting ideas and piloting change um, because we're invested in them in a different way because of our lived experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, with the, like, added pressure of, like, no room to fail, that's really... Mm. I think really, really a hard thing. And so, so often what we're seeing in, in institutional leadership change is that um, IBPOC folks are coming in. Like, I don't, I don't think it's a coincidence that they're coming in on the other side of COVID partially because there's this social awareness sweeping the country, mm-hmm. but partially because people uh, need folks to come in and clean up and it is not. Yeah. Uh, and it is a, a horrible pattern um, mm. and a very real pattern that often, you know, racialized folks or marginalized people are um, brought in to kind of like clean up and turn an organization around only for it to be handed back um, uh, to to a white person and then for it to thrive. Now, oh, yeah. yeah, like I'm like, I, I can't, I'm not trying to like, I'm not trying to point any fingers. I'm just trying to th- think about like it is I'm so excited about the leadership changes but I'm also recognizing that all the leadership changes that have been announced in the last year are going to be facing one of the most difficult years on the books for theater historically yeah yeah and it's also interesting because you know talking about like having like the the freedom to fail um you know you bring in you bring in people uh you know uh, indigenous black uh people of color into the theaters and leadership roles um you're right. They have to have the exact same amount of freedom to fail as somebody would give uh, a, a, a white artistic director as well. Um, yeah, It's just so like sometimes I, I see uh, in my mind, I see people come in and there's like the board has deigned that we will allow a person of color into this leadership role. Mm-hmm. But how much control will the board allow them to have? And that's often like one of those questions that I have is somebody who sits outside, like what's happening? Is this person actually being allowed to create the season they want or are they, do they have training wheels on? Like what is happening behind the scenes? Mm-hmm. I want to see all of that. I want to know that, that our, our new artistic leaders are being given the exact same uh, uh, leadership and, 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 and control and freedom that was given to the, the white artistic director that came before. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, just to change gears slightly, <laughs> um, one of the things that I am always really interested in, and one of the things I love to talk to people about on 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 this program, is about what made you want to, what led you into theater. Um, I I like to think of it as like your theater origin story. Um, what was your first experience with theater? How did you decide that it was going to be your thing? Oh, um, 
That's a good question. I don't know that I have a like a really lovely kind of concise story. I can think about a lot of like early theater experiences that were pretty magical. Um, but maybe the clearest thing I can offer is that um, my family's always been really encouraging of me, but also like skeptical about the arts as a career. I hmm. was a kid who was very good at school, who was pretty precocious and it felt like I could do a lot of things. And there was a lot of questions entering university about whether I was like wasting my potential by choosing to go into the arts. Hmm. Um, I think part of my, and I resisted, I did two years of science. Um, but part of the reason that I ended up in the arts is, is because of early exposure to accessible art. Um, we didn't, have season tickets to anything we didn't go to plays I didn't know what any of the I grew up in Edmonton um in Miskwichi West Gagan and Treaty 6 territory and I I didn't know what any of the theaters looked like I didn't know what the insides of any of those buildings looked like even in university the reason that I was uh, like entranced by theater or what got me engaged by performing was a really because of widely accessible public art um and in Edmonton this took place in two forms um the the fringe festival uh which yes there are theaters and buildings engaged mm -hmm, in that mm -hmm. but like uh, there's kids fringe and there are street performers mm -hmm, uh mm -hmm. and so most of the stuff that i saw was the free programming that you could just see from being on the street my dad would go get a roll of loonies uh and we would go and hang out until we were out of loonies um <laughs> And the second is the Edmonton International Street Performers Festival, which mm. is exactly the same thing. We would go as a family with a roll of loonies and we would spend until we were out of loonies. <laughs> um, and and I'm, I think of these, you know, I know that people aren't like, oh, street performers and theater. That's like not necessarily a natural connection because um, a lot of it is about showmanship or magic or fire breathing or whatever. But I was just as entranced by the people doing puppet shows or, or the storytelling as the, can I get a volunteer people? Um, and so being able to access that art um, as a family that didn't um, prioritize spending money on, on um, like theater tickets, especially for mm -hmm. children, that was so transformative for me because almost all of my early access to performing arts was at Fringe Festival or the Street Performance Festival. Um, yeah. And so I, I think about that, reflect on that. And I think about how important it is to keep um, performing creative arts accessible uh, to children. Hmm. There's something beautiful about your first exposure to theatricality being street performers, many of whom are quite flamboyant and quite innovative in what they're doing. Um, and it's not always magic but it's magical in many ways mm -hmm. and that as an influence on a young on a young mind that then goes into theater that's that to me that there's something very beautiful about that mm -hmm. well thank you I mean I always I'm like oh I always want that pithy story of like and then I saw Christmas Carol and I knew mm. from that <laughs> moment on I was going to be you know it was just so so much theater was so inaccessible and I remember like, I don't know, being a kid and wanting to like get involved in improv and other stuff mm. like that and having an opportunity to go like be in a U of A show. And my parents were like, this is a terrible idea. You'll have to miss school. 
like, you know, you're gonna, you're gonna be with a bunch of like adults we don't know, like, Mm. no, no way. And I'm like, yeah, okay, that totally makes sense. Like, that's, there's a reason why so many um, children who get involved with theater have parents who are involved with theater, because our industry is weird. And the demands are weird. And the hours are weird. Yeah. (laughs) So, so it's not like, it's a hard thing to get involved in. Yeah, and it is. I mean, because it's weird, and and if you don't have a have have a family that 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 has been involved, whether through amateur theater or whatever, the weirdness is certainly a barrier. Mm-hmm. Like, what are those people doing? And but, I think and why also, do they do it at night? Or, yeah, well, what you, yeah. What do you mean they want you to be at the theater for twelve hours for yeah. tech? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, that doesn't make any sense to parents. <laughs> no. And there's also, I mean, the fact that our audiences and people who see theater even don't really know what happens in the rehearsal room. Mm-hmm. Whatever happens there, that's like a magic trick to them. And if that's a magic trick to people who are familiar with theater, what is it to people who don't know theater at all? So it's completely understandable that they would be resistant. Mm-hmm. So how did you find your way, uh, like, you know, when we go into theater, a lot of people, they have their gateway into theater is acting. How did you find your way to directing and dramaturgy? Uh, no, luck and fear or something like that. <laughs> um, uh, I, yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, the gateway drug was certainly acting. I wanted to act, um, I don't know that I'm a very good actor. I think I'm a very good reader. Uh, and I think I went to do undergrad and, oh, I, I went to, I even went to like a kind of art school that offered like high school that had acting classes or whatever. Um, but the, the, I always felt like I was getting a message that they didn't know where to put me. Um, they didn't know hmm. what to do with me. And I, whether this was true or not, I always walked away feeling it was because of how I looked, Hmm. um, that I couldn't be a part of any family story that because I wasn't a singer, I couldn't be in the musicals that, um, the best they could do was like make me a shopkeeper, um, or a sex Hmm. worker or put me in the background. Hmm. Uh, and so that persisted like, yeah, through university. And I just, I felt like frustrated that I could get like good grades in acting classes, but like not get cast in anything. Yeah. Um, And so I had a lot of, I think, fear that made me not want to go out into the real world um, Mm. and try auditioning. And so I went to graduate school um, and I I started to connect a little bit more with my identity and trying to figure out what other Asian artists were doing in Canada and the United States, uh, which led to me finishing my master's degree and then getting an internship, which was like super weird. I did a master's degree in Europe, but then got an internship in Toronto. <laughs> um, and so I came to Toronto and started working with Fujian Theatre. And Fujian was like a place where they were like, you don't have to be doing Asian art to mm. be an Asian artist. You just are an Asian artist. So go do mm. art. Um which sounds obvious, but it was a transformative bit of thinking for me that I could just mm-hmm. like be an artist. Um, and because of the, the, um, oh gosh, I don't know what it's called in Ontario now, but like the old TCR program, the Theatre Creators Reserve. Yes, yes. It's like now called a recommenders program or something like that. 
Mm-hmm. Um, that was like my kind of first taste of, of dramaturgy, sort of reading through those applications for Fujian. Um, and then Fujian had a writer's kitchen and I got to participate in that. And so I started learning about dramaturgy that way while also asserting that I wanted to be a director. Mm. Um, and so I was fortunate enough that, um, you know, uh, Fujian had me assist uh, Nina Aquino on a production and then she had me continue on to assist her at the Tarragon in another production. Uh, and I kind of took those experiences and, uh, my partner and I moved to Calgary because our families are both in Alberta. Mm -hmm. Um, and I just showed up in Calgary and was like, you know, I'm just going to tell people I'm a director and a dramaturg. Hmm. Uh, and, and, and so I kind of tried to carve out a space for myself, mostly as a director here. Uh, and at the same time, um, I got asked by Brian Court to, to join as the assistant dramaturg at the Playwrights Lab at the Banff Center. Mm-hmm. And so I've been working with that program for eight years now and um, through close mentorship with Brian and um, ongoing work in new play development across Canada and the United States that all started from the connections I originally made at Fujian and then have rapidly expanded through organizations like LMDA and through the people I meet at the BAM Center um, have really like built my career as a dramaturg in that way. So luck mm-hmm. uh, started yeah. with fear, ended with a lot of luck. Mm. Now, near the beginning, but I think before we started recording, we were talking about uh, a lot of a lot of times at this point. At this point in the conversation, I probably ask about how your pandemic is going. Mm. Um, but your pandemic, m- part of your pandemic, would have been spent um, preparing to have a child. Mm-hmm. Um, were you working on something at the start of the pandemic, or like what was happening for you at the beginning? like about a year ago when, when all of this started? Yeah. Um, I was working on a chromatic show called Wo de Ming Chi Zhang Sing En, Give Me Chance Lei, by Chris Vanessa Teo. Uh, it was it, a one-woman show written by um, a local Calgarian who's grown up in between Singapore and Calgary, kind of about her experiences. Um, yeah, about her experiences. And, hmm. and that got canceled that was a chromatic show mm-hmm. um and then i was supposed to be out at stratford doing the michael langham program last summer right. and that also right. got canceled so those were mm-hmm. sort of the two big things and then i guess it, it, it I'm like had it yeah it had also been announced that i was like directing a show at vertigo and directing a show at atp which mm. one was canceled and one was postponed. So like mm-hmm. I had a bunch of work kind of like um, a bunch of career momentum and work that kind of like stopped, which was very, very scary. Yeah. Um, but I also think that as things picked up in the way that they sort of picked up and as theaters become, became more aware of their responsibility um, to racialized artists, I was one of many or few depends who you ask um fortunate who were offered um new gigs Hmm. or who were asked to come in and do consultations or who i also have a like side hustle facilitating and teaching (laughs) um you know some like uh, things in and around like anti-racism or bystander intervention Mm -hmm. and um yeah so so my pandemic ended up being okay but instead of like three or four big gigs it ended up being like a hundred side hustles Mm. um and like two big gigs uh, or medium gigs and so you know i I, it was a a wild year to also 
um, experience while pregnant. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of hustling. Uh, That's, yeah, yeah. And I mean, I mean, a lot of times the theater world can be a lot of hustling, mm -hmm. but to end up with like, as you say, a hundred little jobs. Um, and hustling for all of that, that's got to be kind of exhausting. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I'm like, I don't know if I'd have the energy to do it right now. Um, but <laughs> yeah, at the time it was just sort of like, it was sort of like panic and then trying to find your way back on your feet. And then you'd said yes to so many things. Mm. Um, and then you were just trying to like keep your head above water. And I feel like the rhythm of things has maybe chilled out a little bit. But, you know, Alberta, Ontario, BC are mm. all sort of like, you know, two steps forward, one step back. And so yeah. we're moving back into lockdown just as Chromatic was trying to remount this show that we had to cancel. And so right. literally as of yesterday, we're back as a production team being like, okay, pals, what do what are we going to do? Mm. Um, and, and there's no, no clear answer. But COVID has also taught us, I think, that... You can spend all your energy making plan A, B, C, D, E, F, G, or you can um, wait a week because things might change. Yeah, there's certainly a certainly a a, a, a lesson about um, just letting things go, mm -hmm. like accepting what you can't control. Which for a lot of theater artists, I mean, there's a lot of things we can't control, but there's also a lot of things that we really try hard to control. Um, and at this point, there's so much out of our hands. I think there's also like a real psychological toll to being deemed non-essential, you know? I think for so many of us, we mm. feel like art is essential to who we are. And mm. so again, this is kind of tied back to a values piece, but when the core of, of who you are, or how you make your identity is like being told by society that it's not valuable, it's a really tricky thing to reconcile. And I totally understand being non-essential is different from being non-valuable, mm -hmm. um, but but they get conflated in your brain. Sure. Mm -hmm. There's also this this weird thing that that you know um, everybody that I know in the theater world and outside of the theater world has consumed more streaming media in the last year than ever before. Mm -hmm. And what is that if not art? Mm -hmm. So if we in in these times turn to streaming platforms, to, to online productions, whatever it is, more than we ever have before, how, in, how is it not in some way essential? Absolutely feel like for so many of us, whether we've pivoted and made our companies do online things or not, that the streaming art is new to us. And so frankly, a lot mm. of like the theater art that I've seen that has made the pivot is okay at best. Yeah. Um, you know, people who are at the top of their game and live performance are doing okay with not live performance or with streamed performance. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I think it's, it's also tricky because we have to know somewhere in there that we're a little out of our depth. Absolutely. And it's not, I think, I don't think that anybody thinks that, that, that this, their streaming play is as, is the quality that it would be if you were in a theater. You miss so much. I think 
it's like, this is what we got right now. And this is what we're doing. And we're learning. But like you say, like so, a lot of people were really good on the stage and speaking into a webcam is just never going to be the same and it's never going to be as satisfying. And so it's never going to be as good a show. It's well, and it's just... also tied to the way that we consume digital media. Like, yeah. like I am trained to watch television or Netflix or whatever I'm watching with while I'm like with my phone in my hands, mm-hmm. <laughs> like, where I might yeah. be texting or I might check Facebook or whatever. Um, I am trained in the theater to like turn my phone off and put it away and engage with this like energy exchange that's happening. And so when I have the option to stream theater onto my computer, I have a really, really hard time turning my phone off and tucking it away and sitting in a dark room and just watching it like because the energy exchange isn't there. And so then I maybe am texting while I'm trying to watch a show. And then I realize Mm -hmm. I've missed it or I, I realize I didn't care as much as I wanted to. And and yeah. then I'm frustrated because I miss the theater. Uh, yeah. And it just doesn't, it's for, for me, it's not quite the same. No. And it's also, we have to combat the fact that a lot of people are spending a lot, big portions of their day in online meetings. Mm-hmm. And a lot of theater productions look a lot like online meetings. And it's so difficult for the brain to separate those two things. Mm -hmm. We don't have that moment where we walk into the theater lobby and then we go into the theater and we're surrounded by the chairs and and all of this. There's no moving into the space that makes it feel like it's different from the work meeting that we had about 30 minutes before we went to see this show. And that's, that's a hard thing as well. Absolutely. There's the transitional space is so limited and, we're screened out and, and yeah, like, yeah, I don't know I, that you, you're hitting the nail on the head. Like, I don't want to hang out with my laptop at eight <laughs> o'clock at night all the time. <laughs> no, no. I'm often just quite happy to close my laptop and walk away from it. That's mm-hmm. the problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's all been strange, but like, again, I have to be uh are grateful for like the variety of opportunities that have come out of COVID mm-hmm. and for the learning that I've had uh, about how to make work um, for digital mediums and the, the mm-hmm. relationships I've been able to forge. Not everything is perfect. Like there are certainly things that I am cri- critical of as I feel like being critical is part of a creative practice, but mm-hmm. um, yeah, things are, things are imperfect. And I am, um, I'm excited to share space with humans in a, theater again Hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah yeah Mm -hmm. um just sort of as we sort of like head towards a a finish here um one of the questions that i've been asking everyone um since basically since the the pandemic started is a question about joy and we all have had moments where uh we've really felt that we could use a little bit of an infusion of joy. So so if you could tell me a couple of things that have been giving you joy through the pandemic. Well, I mean, the biggest and most obvious one for me is that I have a, a new baby um, and that is pretty joyful. It's hard, mm-hmm. but it's extraordinary and really, really beautiful. Uh, so I feel, I feel really fortunate <laughs> about that. Um, yeah. Uh, 
Yeah, and that's sort of taking up a lot of my time and energy right now. I'm sure it is. <laughs> and but that's a that's a big thing to to and that's a lot of joy right there. So Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty special and like being able to bring him you know, for an appearance on a Zoom call and, and all that mm. stuff that's been really special. Well, maybe the other thing that comes to mind really as I think about that has been um, community. My notion of community mm. has really shifted and then solidified over the course mm. of the pandemic um, because of all of the violence that so many racialized communities have faced over the past year. I think the ways in which we've shown up to each other have crys- shown up for one another have crystallized in a, in a really special way. And so... Um, the network of folks who are checking in with me and with each other and the way that people mm. have um, learned to and practice self-advocating, like I need to drop off for a little while, I'm coming back in. The volunteer initiatives that have um, arisen that are uh, theater or arts-based, but sometimes are about just getting out to a protest or figuring out where to mm. source masks safely or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. I think that's bringing me a lot of joy to sort of see this kind of uh coalescence of of artists that I admire and respect um really taking care of each other uh when the world has not been entirely Hmm. kind Hmm. yeah Hmm. well Jenna thank you so much for this conversation it's been wonderful thanks thanks for talking with me this evening oh yeah my pleasure (laughs) 